Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Marin Gedder. And each week we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. And this week, there isn't really any bigger story, to be honest, than the US election, as I think everyone would agree. Everyone here in this room um, is pretty shattered. We've all been up all night watching the election, up all day writing, talking about it. But now we're going to try and say some more interesting stuff. And what we really want to do is kind of throw things forward and look a little bit at what a Trump presidency might actually look like. Absolutely. For better or for worse, this has happened. And now we need to, to work out what Trump's policies are going to be. You know, he's made so many campaign promises, some of which seem completely fanciful, some which seem more realistic. And it really is a question of what Congress will allow him to get away with. But we also want to sort of look beyond America as well. And this is a man who has said some very inflammatory things. How is he going to be received by the international community? Yeah, and Russia seems like a big part of that. We were just uh, talking to Jacob, who we'll introduce in a minute earlier, about how remarkable it is that we've got this Republican president now who's been so kind of soft on, on Russia for that party, which is remarkable. So anyway, now that I've mentioned one of them, it seems like a good time to bring in our guests. I'm Jacob Periculus, and I'm the assistant head of the U.S. and the Americas program at Chatham House. And I'm Leslie Vinjamori, a senior lecturer in international relations at SOAS. It might sound like an obvious question, and it probably is an obvious question, but you guys are both Americans. How are you feeling about what's just happened? I don't think I've really had time to process it yet. I slept about an hour and a half last night, so I apologize for any incoherence that uh, stems from that. I think like a lot of people, I went into last night relatively convinced, not sure, but relatively convinced by the the data journalism that was out there, by the polls, by the aggregation, by the models that said that Clinton was something between a 75 and 98% chance of victory. So I guess I didn't do the due diligence. I didn't do sort of thinking, okay, how, how will I react in the event that Trump wins? Because I had actually and foolishly convinced myself that one outcome was much more likely than the other. Um, so I, I, I guess that's a long way of saying I don't really know. I think it'll take a few days before I really come to terms with it. I think it's very tough. I found the result difficult. Um, I did not anticipate it. And I think that it's been difficult to watch Americans at home and Europeans here in London have the reaction that I've witnessed, which is shock, 
almost horror. Uh, and that's not so much about what Donald Trump's policies might be, but it's more about what he represents, his willingness to abandon a sense of decency, decorum, and dignity. And that, for me, has been the most upsetting result. So I think that that's very difficult to come to terms with. And perhaps that's kind of somewhere to start almost. It's been an extremely uh, sort of ferocious campaign, particularly on the Trump side. And now he's in the White House. He was almost certainly really the more divisive candidate in a divisive election. What's he got to do now to kind of heal some of the divisions that have grown up in the country, do we think? I think there are two questions there. What should he do and what will he do? Because I think what he should do is start by addressing some of the more excessive aspects of his campaign. I mean, this is a guy who is endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan. You know, this is not normal for American politics. And he wants to be the president of a multi-confessional, multi-ethnic, multi-sectarian country. You cannot do that. Effectively, you cannot be the president and speak for all the people when white supremacists are endorsing you and you're not pushing back aggressively against them. So that's what he should do. Will he do that? I don't know. My basic position at this point, again on an hour and a half of sleep, is that we just don't know a lot of things about the Trump presidency and he does have the capacity to surprise. Given the roots of his success, given the promises that he's made and the sort of – the way in which he's fashioned his campaign, I would be surprised if that was a part of it. But I wouldn't be completely shocked. The thing about his incentive, I guess, is that it's now changed. So it was a very effective strategy, unfortunately during the campaign to divide and mobilize because he was working against a particular candidate. But now, and I think we saw this in his acceptance speech, that he he really did try to, in a sense, behave, right, to unify the country, to talk about the importance of working together going forward. He took a very different tone. And not only, I think, because it's the right thing to do on that kind of speech, but because he has a very strong incentive now to bring people together because it will make his job much easier. He's impulsive. He's uh, short term in his thinking. So whether he'll be able to stick to that is a very significant and outstanding question. But we've seen conciliatory Trump before. We saw it particularly when he went to Mexico and met with Peña Nieto. And he was very conciliatory and talked about broader issues facing the U.S.-Mexico, broader issues facing the, the Western Hemisphere. And then four hours later, he was on the ground in Arizona saying they don't know it yet, but they're going to pay for that wall and going right back to the, the red meat. And, and I agree with Leslie that, you know, this is – his incentive has changed. But I suspect that the sort of underlying behavior uh, will take some time to shift, if it does, to a, a mode that actually sort of acknowledges that. I think that's right. And I think it's what the rest of the world's a bit worried about, right? Because there are incentives, but then there's this personality and this way of behaving that just seems unpredictable and a bit out of control. And I think especially for our European partners, that's difficult to comprehend working with. Yeah, because this is something where the US is kind of, it's a bit of a cornerstone of the international order almost, isn't it? How is the simple fact of Trump getting in there going to affect that? What are the kind of ripples that are going to throw out from this sort of stone that's been chucked into the water? And what can Trump do to kind of calm that a bit and to sort of allay fears among international allies and the West? Well, I think first he has got to change his rhetoric. And this comes back to a bit of what Jacob was saying. Extending a hand, meeting with people, toning down the hard line on what our allies must do if they want to play ball with the United States. But that transformation, I think, will be crucial. He's put many, many states on the back foot 
already. One thing that we saw today was a lot of far-right leaders across Europe tweeting their support and congratulations for him. So when we talk about, you know, the international order, we, we seem to be in this situation where mainstream political leaders are having to sort of bite their tongues and smile and, and say congratulations. And then you've got the KKK saying, oh, we're so thrilled that you're in the White House. You know, it does seem like an absolute mess. One of the issues there is that while right-wing nationalists in different countries may agree fundamentally on their views towards a multi-ethnic society, their views towards free trade, their views towards globalization and sort of internationalization of policy. They ultimately may end up in conflict with each other because a nationalist view of what's in France's national interest and a nationalist view of what's in American national interest aren't necessarily going to be the same thing and may actually be diametrically opposed. And I think we're going to see that particularly in regards to Russia because Russia is a very divisive issue amongst nationalists. You have a right-wing nationalist government in Poland, for example, which is extremely anti-Russia. You then have right-wing nationalist parties in countries like France, which are much more pro-Russia, much more willing to take Russian funding. And of course, Russia itself is happy to dole out funds and support and backing of various kinds uh, above and below board to parties, regardless really of ideology, more out of strategic calculations. Putin um, actually not quite welcomed exactly, but greeted Trump's victory today with some sort of vaguely conciliatory words. I think we've got a clip of it. He spoke about resuming and restoring relations between Russia and the United States. We understand that the way to that would be difficult, taking into account. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The current state of degradation of relations between the US and Russia. So there's Putin pointing out that things are not exactly... um, hot right now between the US and Russia, sort of suggesting that this might mark a bit of a break, pointing out that Trump has said things to that effect in the past. I mean, what do we think? Is Trump going to significantly pivot towards Russia to to change American orthodoxy on this issue? He's going to run into some hard constraints once he's actually leading the country rather than leading a campaign. And, And Putin will have a very different view of Donald Trump, too, once Donald Trump has hard constraints, domestic politics, and interests that he has to look after. So this has been a honeymoon period, but it's unlikely to last. And that's the thing. I mean, when Donald Trump... I I still can't believe I'm actually saying this. When Donald Trump takes the presidency, he's obviously going to inherit the the war in Syria. And that is such a a big problem for the US. The US is directly opposed to Russia at the moment in that war. How is he going to reconcile his expressed admiration for Putin with the US's policy of opposing Russia's actions within Syria? I think he'll probably roll back support for militant groups in Syria that have clashed with the Assad government. Uh, I think he'll take at face value Russia's claim that it and Assad are attacking ISIS and Nusra and other terrorist groups, even when they're attacking groups that are not those, that are not affiliated, that are fundamentally, if not U.S. aligned, then at least sort of U.S. neutral. And I think he will essentially put Russia even more in the driver's seat of Syria policy than it has been. I mean, Trump's 
policy in Syria is effectively, we're going to smash ISIS and everything else isn't America's national interest. So to the extent that Putin can convince Trump, and I don't think this will be a particularly difficult ask or particularly hard lift for Putin to do, that he and Assad are fighting terrorists, then Trump will support that. So you'll see more military cooperation. And that wouldn't logistically be a very difficult thing to do. It's just politically difficult. Something we've seen from him throughout the campaign, actually, is he's quite sort of almost impressionable. He kind of lights on new political ideas as they're presented to him. He's actually been quite flexible on some areas of his platform, like, for example, on reproductive rights, where it wasn't really much of an issue for him before. He was sort of vaguely pro-choice, and then he sort of immediately pivoted right to the kind of um, harder end of the other side when, when that came up in the campaign. Is that something that Putin is kind of ready to take advantage of? And will he be able to kind of push his buttons in that way? I think a lot of people will try to take advantage of Donald Trump. I'm not so sure that they'll succeed. I mean, one could say he's flexible or one could say he's impulsive. He's not pragmatic. And I think it's really pragmatism that it takes to push a sensible policy through. So will Putin be able to push his buttons? I don't think that's going to be a difficult thing to do. But again, on Syria, I don't think that this is going to be a major point of focus for Donald Trump. This is not really where he's going to invest his energies. He'll go for the easy win. And if that's, you know, kind of let, letting Russia do what it wants to do and backing Assad, then then that, I think, will be plenty for him. Well, you say he won't invest his energies in Syria. One area, and it's another country, that he seems to be very passionate about is China or China. And he said that he wants to crack down on China to sort of increase um, tariffs on, on the country. Is that something that's going to happen? Because as we know, you know, the US's relationship with China when it comes to trade is already very precarious. It doesn't seem like the right time to spark a trade war with Beijing. It'll be an interesting series of incentives and sort of counterbalances with China because on one level, he'll be more aggressive with China. He'll be more interested in raising trade barriers in potentially bringing them to arbitration for currency issues, seeking various sorts of remedies for perceived Chinese actions or slights against the U.S. But at the same time, he's going to be moving back from U.S. alliances that strategically balanced against China. So he's going to be demanding more from South Korea and Japan and offering less in return. And those are the fundamental source of US power balancing against China. So I don't know how that all plays out. My gut feeling is that the Chinese leadership is willing to take that trade, that a US that's less militarily and strategically engaged in South Asia is one that they're willing to accept a little bit of trade sort of competition or trade barriers from. The known unknown that will drive much of this is who Donald Trump appoints to advise him and to run the administration together with him. And that's a very big, outstanding question. And I suspect, given his relative lack of knowledge and experience on many of these issues, that he will lean quite heavily on his instincts about the competence of the people that he selects and the extent to which he trusts them. So I think watching that space is going to be incredibly important. What kind of people do we think might end up inside. I mean, this is, you know, this is guesswork at this point, but hey, we're all tired. It's election day. Let's, let's indulge in well, some Well, some people are, some people have suggested that John Bolton is a candidate for, I think, Secretary of State. That's one name that's out there. There are, I think, three broad categories of people uh, that he might pick from. There are his, his sort of trusty 
uh, surrogates. So everyone thinks that Rudy Giuliani and Newt Gingrich and Chris Christie are all going to get high place roles within the administration. Of those, Gingrich would probably be the only one who'd be placed in state because he has some level of vaguely applicable experience. The other possibility, as Leslie said, is somebody like John Bolton, who has a more neoconservative view, but whose general approach towards American allies and adversaries alike could probably be aligned with Trump's without too much trouble. The other possibility is that he might pick somebody like Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, who's the chairman of Senate Foreign Relations and is generally fairly well respected and relatively thoughtful and sort of well-informed on, on foreign policy. And that would be the sort of consensus most establishment choice. But the other issue isn't just the cabinet level positions. It's the the deputy assistant secretaries. It's the staff of the National Security Council. It's the people who will be advising the advisors, the regional specialists, the the various political appointees. I think there are some 7,000 of them that he has to fill. And the, the foreign policy part of the Republican Party has been the most resistant to Trump. It's where you find the largest number of people who were willing to not only not endorse Trump, but actively endorse Hillary Clinton, largely on sort of national security and American role in the world issues. Some of those people will, will decide that it's in the national interest for them to sort of walk that back and work if asked in a Trump administration. Some of them won't. And those roles will then be filled if they're not filled by Republicans. He's not going to appoint Democrats to those positions. So then you end up with people who are either underqualified or come from a completely different sphere. And you end up with somebody who maybe ran a business in a region of the world, you know, if they can get through the Senate, which probably they can. And is that something that we're going to see across the Trump cabinet and across the different departments where he's going to staff them with people who you say are sort of not very well experienced? Or do you think he will take on people's advice and appoint some Democrats, appoint some moderate Republicans? I mean, how how do we think he's going to do this? I think we don't know. But my guess is that he will do a lot of delegation. So he'll choose the senior level person and he'll give them a lot of rope to choose the next level. And so it really does come down to those first key appointments. The next layer will matter a lot in terms of how things go, but I'm not at all convinced that he will make those choices. He doesn't strike me as a micromanager. From what I understand, he's sort of, he's a micromanager on certain often communications-related issues, but in a lot of ways, especially on policy, which he hasn't evinced a lot of interest in, he will probably give people broad latitude. I think the, the guidepost here is Mike Pence his vice president to be, who is someone who's relatively conventional, but quite far to the right for the Republican Party. I think that probably gives us a sense, you know, he's not going to be bringing in a lot of truly unconventional people, maybe some some business leaders, but that's not all that uncommon for Republican administrations and not unheard of for Democratic ones for that matter. But that will probably be the model for most of his appointments. He's not been the clearest or the most consistent of candidates. But in terms of the clues we have, are there any domestic policies that we think he's likely to enact? Anything that he's said he'll do that we think he definitely won't enact or won't be able to enact? You know, any kind of clues that we've had there, areas which you think he's likely to focus on? We can certainly pull some out. But the interesting thing about his campaign and in some ways why it works so well is that he really had wonderful rhetoric make America great. But he didn't ever really have to spell out how he intends to do that. He's going to cut taxes. And, you know, there are a variety of things that sort of come up. But I don't think it's gotten granular. He won perhaps not as much as was 
stated beforehand or not as much as was made of it, but he did win some sort of crucial kind of blue collar votes in states like Ohio, which were actually electorally relatively significant to him. I mean, do you think he's got any idea about the kind of like industrial strategy those people might want to see about the kind of public spending those people might want to see? Or do you think he was just winging it? He talks about an investment package for infrastructure, for schools, for inner cities. That's maybe the one area where the Democrats would be willing to work with him. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has already brought it up as a possibility. I think if there's going to be a sort of modicum of bipartisanship, it'll be around that. Now, the specifics of it, insofar as there are any, I think are not going to be particularly welcomed by the Democrats. He wants to uh, privatize roads. He wants to privatize aspects of national infrastructure, which I think the Democrats probably resist. But there may be some space for compromise, some kind of incentive structure or partial privatization that they'd be willing to swallow. In terms of other priorities, bringing back manufacturing, Look, he's not wrong that the jobs have left, but he has misdiagnosed whether they can be brought back because fundamentally at this point, the issue isn't that those jobs have gone to Mexico or China. It's that they have been automated and that even if you bring the factories back, what once was a factory that employed 15,000 people is now a high-tech plant that employs 1,500 or 150 and those people all have degrees in systems engineering. It's not the kind of place that the blue-collar workers, the people who don't have advanced degrees can just sort of walk in and get a stable job for life. There's a real downside for him there in that if he's promised these people this enormous sort of benefit of bringing back jobs. And I don't think he's going to be able to deliver it. But also, I mean, we have to note that we're talking about him almost as though he's sort of a prime minister figure, you know, one with a, an immense amount of power. The president is a different role. He's hemmed in by the legislative. So how much power does Donald Trump really have to deliver these promises? He's hemmed in by the Congress, but he's won the Congress. By American standards, this is a man who's going to be very powerful. And you think the Congress will support him rather than defy him? I, I know that obviously his party, but... All bets are off. But my <laughs> guess is that he will have, at least for a period of time, he will have a very serious mandate to enact policies if he chooses to do so. I think basically what it comes down to is that he will make a deal with Congress because there are issues where he and they agree. You know, They both want to cut taxes. They both want those tax cuts to be primarily directed towards upper income earners and corporations. So that'll get done very quickly. They both want to repeal Obamacare. That will probably get done quickly, although they have to contend with the fact that yanking 22 million people's health insurance will come at a political cost. So I suspect they may sort of roll out aspects of a repeal rather than sort of doing it all at once. When you get to social issues and some of the things that are deeper in Paul Ryan's agenda than in Donald Trump's, then you get more into the sort of horse trading. And there, I think you'll see some degree of perhaps Republicans offering to support things that are Trump priorities, like the family leave package that he, at his daughter's suggestion, included in the party platform in exchange for him signing off on either certain slates of judges or on other sort of social issues that he doesn't really deeply care about. What do we think might be the best thing about a Donald Trump presidency? We've spoken about a lot of potential problems, both in terms of the way he's seen around the world, about issues he might have in international relations and domestically. Is there anything we can see that might be really strong on the current signs? The best thing about the presidency is that there are many people who will feel like they've been heard their vote has been considered, and they have brought a candidate that they actually really want to the White House. And that's not how they felt, many of them, for the past eight years. 
And it's certainly not how they would have felt had Hillary Clinton been elected president. So that in and of itself, if it's managed, if it's led, if it's sort of fertilized and developed, could be good. But there are a lot of steps between that sort of sentiment and that election and what comes next. I think the thing that occurs to me is that because he's not someone who came up through the traditional channels of politics, he may bring in people or have ideas that are creative or unique. And there's a lot of upside and a lot of downside there. I mean, a, a, a creative policy can be really effective. It can sort of break through established thinking and it can shift paradigms to be slightly buzzwordy about it um, in ways that things that came through the standard political channels maybe couldn't, or it can be a complete disaster. But the upside is there, and I think we have to acknowledge that. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. Um, Thank you so much, Leslie and Jacob, for coming on the show. Thank you to everyone who listened in. Just a reminder that you can catch us every week on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Acast. Don't forget to like us, subscribe to us, rate us. And if you can't wait till next week, visit us at newsweek.com or pick up a copy of Newsweek. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.